Hi, everybody. It's Dennis Daly, inviting you to join me for the next hour, right here. And our time together is called Vintage Vincent. I hope you've been enjoying the interviews I found in my archives and some of the new ideas presented every week right here. And this time, we begin with a quiz. What do the following songs have in common? Silver Bells, Buttons and Bows, Mona Lisa, Que Sera Sera, and Tammy, and the theme from Mr. Ed and Bonanza? Well... All of those songs were written by two guys named Jay Livingston and Ray Evans. And I had the pleasure of spending some time with them on the 60th anniversary of their beginning to write music uh, when they had just met. That was back when they were in college. At the University of Pennsylvania, that's where Ray went and where I went. At the end of my freshman year, Ray was playing sax in a band that was going to Europe. And they needed a piano player. And that's how I got involved with them. And in my junior year, I took the band over myself, and Ray played sax in it. And we traveled all over the world. It was a wonderful thing. That's how we met. The thought occurs to me that, I forget whom it was I was interviewing, maybe it was Steve Allen, who told me that he was impressed with the reemergence of musicianship at the, at the college level. I went to Indiana University, where we had a wonderful jazz and a wonderful opera school. What, what about that that level of musicianship. What, when you talk to young people now, what, what do you see as far as what's going on in colleges? Mm -hmm. Well, I've never really talked to young people on this level. Instead, you said Indiana University. I told you, Michael, too. That's a pretty good uh, uh, attribute to Indiana University. But I've heard, you know, the, at North Texas State, that they have a, a, a jazz band, it's one of the great jazz bands in the world. And I noticed that I go to a lot of football games here, and the marching bands are playing a lot of jazz, not jazz, they're playing a a lot of rock and a lot of mud. I don't think they play it very well, but there is a, a, a recognition that there's more to music than Sousa marches, etc. And when they do have jazz programs at these schools, the people I've heard have been very good. Now, I'm going on a jazz cruise uh, tomorrow, and um, it's the third year I've been out, it's just for a week uh, out, of, out of Miami, and they have great jazz people in there. And two years ago when I was there, they had an all-women's jazz band where just one, and every one of them was a student or a graduate student at one of the t uh, at, at a musical college, so mm -hmm. there is a lot of recognition and a, and a lot of implementation of jazz in, in among the young people. This girls' band called the Divas were wonderful. Was it Phil Spitalny? Was that his name? We had the all-girl orchestra. Yeah, Phil Spitalny. <laughs> Phil Spitalny had an all-girl orchestra. Evelyn and her magic violin. I remember. <laughs> they had a friend, brother named Leopold, and he had a terrible accent. And they met in the street one day and Leopold said, hi, Phil, how do you feel? That's, that's an old story. <laughs> that wasn't a jazz band. That was more of a, you know, uh, uh, the uh, 
Guy Lombardo, Wayne King kind of thing of that era. But it was an all-girls band. And Ida Ray Hutton, I think, had an all-girls band, yeah. too, in, in, in that era. Mm-hmm. I've told this story a lot, but you mentioned Hoagie Carmichael. I've given it away already. My Aunt Pauline went to Indiana University, and she came back home one weekend. And my, my mother's family were kind of a generation away from being Amish. I called it Amish light. Wow. And uh, my Aunt Pauline told my grandfather that she wanted to date this fellow named Hoagland Carmichael, <laughs> but that he was considering leaving law school to continue writing music. And my grandfather cautioned my aunt to give up this shiftless musician, or, or I might have been Hoagie Carmichael's nephew. I never knew his name was Hoagland. You just told me something. It's always been Hoagie to me. I asked Ray Evans, who wrote the lyrics, whether or not most lyricists are not musicians, whether they're just the writers of poetry, or whether they can write both words and music. I've never really thought about that one way or another. I was, you know, a semi-musician, not really a musician. I could play a saxophone a little bit and a clarinet. But, not, but uh, you're right. Most of like Johnny Mercer couldn't, uh, you know, he was not a musician. And uh, Leo Robin was not a musician. All the great ones, Larry Hart was not a musician. So most lyricists are not. But, of course, if you're an Irving Berliner or Cole Porter or Frank Lesser who do both, then you're a musician and a lyricist. And the lyric, lyric, the lyric part of your life is also part of the music of your life. What is it like to have music come from you. There's the, the wonderful story, true or not, that uh, when Handel was in the process of writing Messiah, he, he, his butler came in and Handel is just emotionally drained. He's been crying. And the butler said, what's wrong? He said, nothing. He said, I just heard the Hallelujah Chorus. Well, of course, he was the first person to hear it. I've always felt that, that there's something, whether you call it God or something, that inspires a person. What is it like to have a melody come from you and you're the first person to hear it. Well, we, we worked at Paramount for 10 years, and we had daily assignments. They wanted it tomorrow, a week, two weeks. You can't wait for inspiration. It's like um, in The King of Paris that we wrote about Alexander Dumas. His son said to him, I don't have any talent. And Dumas said, I don't have talent. This table has talent, which is a great line. You sit down and you do it. Well, they say that Hemingway was very much that way. I did a, a, a broadcast from his house in Key West, Florida, and the person showing me around said Hemingway was such a slow and plodding writer, he had to assign certain times of day that he had to sit down and force himself to write or he'd never get it done. Well, we're in that way, sort of that way, too. We haven't been doing much writing lately, and when we do do it, we have to force ourselves to do it, but we do do it once in a while. But in the days that Jay was talking about, we were on our contract at Paramount Studio for over 10 years and we'd go in at 9 or I'd go in at 9 Jade'd come in about noon for lunch and then we'd do whatever the assignment was which is a picture for Bob Hope or a big musical or a title song or whatever we were asked to do and it was a wonderful wonderful 10 years we spent there and of course it uh, makes life very easy now uh, the royalties from the uh, things we created during those days so uh, you know that, uh, uh, but it's harder now to do it I say you have to we have to force ourselves now to do it there's a great story about the, the, the Beatles. Have you heard the song of the story about scrambled eggs? No. Uh, apparently, uh, uh, McCartney had a melody running through his head, and it was da da dum, da 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 dum, and they just called it scrambled eggs, and it, they had it for years before one of them put the words yesterday to it, oh, and the rest is history. That's one of their best songs. You know, 
we were famous for writing title songs. Paramount wanted the title song for every picture. And Two Each Is One was a big one, and Tammy was a big one at Universal. Bonanza, Mr. Ed. We had to write When Worlds Collide. We had to write Vertigo. We had to write Crosswinds. We had to write Beyond, I don't know what Beyond Glory means, but we wrote it. Sangaree. Sangaree. We didn't know what Sangaree meant. <laughs> but we sit down and make it up, and it works. You know, and sometimes they're hits. Now, golden earrings. Yeah. The, are you talking about... Which I associate with Victor Young. His right. music. We already did lyrics on it, sure. We already, like on Dear Heart, to another tell song, we already did lyrics to Mancini's music. Boy, you sing and whistle. Were you a performer or what? Oh, thank you. I'm so flattered by that. I, I'm an inveterate whistler. I, my dad could do all kinds of ornate, wonderful... I can't even do it here, but, but, but trilling, flutter-tonguing kind of things. I can whistle very high and on pitch. Uh, are, are either of you bothered by loud noises? No. I'm All right, not. I, I want to do, uh, whenever a young kid say to me, how do you whistle? I said, you got to practice this. You have to be able to hit the notes square. But yet, you see, if you have an art for whistling, that's also an art for irritation for yeah. a lot of people. <laughs> no, that's sensational. I've never heard anybody whistle that high. Oh, thank you. It sounds like Cleo Lane notes. <laughs> I guess I'm so full of stories. I heard this one the other day, that they're piping Cleo Lane's music out of loudspeakers to keep the birds off the runway at Heathrow Airport. <laughs> really? She's a friend of ours. We were going to do a musical on Broadway with her at one time. It fell through, unfortunately, but we did become good friends. She's a great, great talent and a, and a lovely, charming lady. So uh, uh, all her success is well-deserved. I thank you for the compliment. I, I think that there must be a rewarding thing for the composer to be able to see the music and the lyric performed by someone who does it well. Uh, can, can you give me some examples of, of finally hearing your music performed the way you wanted it to? Well, Rosemary Clooney made some wonderful records, Dinah Shore, Nat Cole was fantastic. They were all great. Once in a while somebody made a record of a song that, that bugged me. They didn't sing the melody right. Or the right chords behind the melody. I enjoy most hearing somebody sing a song just out in the, in the blue, like in Salzburg. A man was uh, washing windows on a castle, and then he was singing, Que sera, sera, and that was a real kick to me. I wanted to ask them about Bonanza. There is a, a, a lyric to the theme from bum -da -dum, -da -dum, -da dum and that it's kind of a tongue twister, almost one of those Gilbert and Sullivan patter songs. The four principals sang it riding into the camera on the first episode and they sounded so ridiculous they cut it. It went, we got a right to fight a little fight bonanza. And one of the things I mentioned to Ray and Jay is that columnist Mike Royko in Chicago used Tammy as an example of something he said we should be able to do as humans and that is purge anything we want out of our minds. He said everyone knew the lyric from Tammy and maybe when they went to bed at night they should just say tomorrow I won't need it unless I'm going to be on Jeopardy. Well, I'm very flattered because uh, to even know that Mike Royker knew anything about Tammy, that he would know the lyrics or, uh, you know, be able to allude to it in one of his famous columns, that, that enhances the ego. It's one of the peripheral rewards of being in this business, of having that great communication. Two of America's great composers, Ray Livingston and Jay Evans. More from the guys who wrote music for 60 years after the break.
Welcome back. Songwriters Ray Livingston and Jay Evans wrote everything from Mona Lisa to Silver Bells to Tammy. And I had the occasion of spending time with them on the 60th anniversary of their teaming up to write music. And they each had wonderful stories about what it was like when they traveled overseas and heard their own music. I was in East Berlin before the wall was uh, was down, and I was really a closed society. So uh, I was with a tourist group. We'd come out of Russia, and I was in a very elegant, brand-new hotel that had just been built there. So I went into the bar, and there was a kind of a blousy-looking band playing on a stage, four or five pieces, and they're playing something, and I said, gee, that sounds familiar. What did And I suddenly realized it was a song we had written for Bob Hope. 40 years ago called A Thousand Violins. So when they finished it, I went for the band. I said, thank you very much. I'm one of the writers of the song. And they just stared at me. So I went to the uh, uh, to the bartender who spoke a little language and said, no, they just played a song that I had written. I'm an American tourist here. Would you tell them how appreciative I am of they play it? He said, I can't talk to them. They're from Bulgaria. <laughs> now, how 40 years later is a band from Bulgaria in East Germany find American Livingston Evans song written for Bapo and a performance? That is one of the great things of being in the music business. You know, my favorite song is uh, All the Things You Are. I whistle it all the time, and I think of these wonderful arrangements where the whole orchestra bump, 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 stops, you know, leaving that, where you come back in and fit, like Laura has one of those, bump, 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 and you have an opportunity to go, and you see, and then the whole band would come back yeah. in. But you think of melodies which become so ingrained in us that children know them and i mean i i can't imagine wherever jerome kern is right now that when that when he wrote all the things you are he would think that here with the millennium almost over that yeah. it's still being heard and performed every day well the songs of that era have never ended fortunately for us we get new records all the time uh, all our songs especially case Sarasara, mona lisa mm -hmm. and a song called never let me go which is my favorite it's in the jazz world wrote it for Nat Cole for a picture. Cleo Lane is a great record, a lot of records. So these records are being done all the time because they can't record instrumentally a rock song. There's no melody. So they have to come to us and our colleagues. Captain Carey, USA. Was it Alan Ladd? It's that wonderful movie where they had a special effect where someone gets hit in the face and they had put a piece of glass in front of them so when the vase hits them, it hits the glass and it makes it look like it hit them in the face, but it left a piece of a vase on the glass. It's, it's one of those wonderful special effects that didn't work. For those who don't remember, the, the song Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, Man Have Named You was sung in this village, I think, as a cue when that, that there yeah. was danger, right? That's right. A Nazi patrol was near. Alan Ladd was with the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA, and he was there fighting, the, uh, helping fight the Nazis. And when a Nazi patrol was coming in, uh, the, the, the picture, the producer, the scriptwriter needed a song to uh, to warn uh, the partisans that uh, get out of the way. It's dangerous, as you said. And instead of going mysterioso, we said we'll write a pretty Italian-style song we can. And uh, luckily, we got Nat Cole to record it, cetera, and the rest is history. It has become an annuity place. Well, now, if they had had Nicholas Rocha do that, he would have had a theremin being yeah. played, I think, when the Nazis showed up. That's right. Well, the trick was that there was a, a, a street accordion player, and 
when he was tipped off that the Nazis were coming, he would play in a more than least sent Al and Lab get out of the way. It was a very unimportant assignment, but it turned out to be an important song. And Nat King Cole did a marvelous recording of it. I wanted to find out from Jay Livingston and Ray Evans just what the late Nat King Cole was like. He was the gentleman. He was as gentle as his voice. I think that's what's made him so popular. I think it's difficult now, certainly we still have racial bias in this country, but to think there was a time when he, this man was a megastar and they couldn't find a sponsor for his TV show. Not only that, but he was forced off the stage in, I think, in Birmingham, Alabama. He wanted to be a professional baseball player. He probably was good enough to do it, but there were no African-American baseball players in those days. Oh, he was a real gentleman, a sweet man, and a great interpreter of music, song, jazz, and everything else. Well, you know, even if he'd never sung, some of the improvisational things he did in, in concert uh, on the piano will stand out forever as being really excellent top-of-the-line stuff. Well, he was a great pianist. He was playing downtown in a little joint, and uh, uh, he never sang. And a drunk came over threatening and said, I want you to sing Sweet Marine. <laughs> and that was the first song he ever sang. And Johnny Mercer heard him and brought him up to Capitol, the John, record company that Johnny had started. It was just a few people, and that started Nat Cole. Uh, Nat didn't like people to play songs for him. He was such a musician, he just wanted the music. But Paramount made a big deal about Mona Lisa, and he had to listen to us at his home. He didn't like to say no to people. That's why he didn't want to listen to a song. So uh, we played it for him. It was on the back side of a record called The Greatest Inventor of Them All. It was supposed to be a big hit. Never even mentioned Mona Lisa in their ads. And that's how that, came, that thing happened. I love those songs that are B-sides. There's, yeah, there, sure. there's the great uh, Jimmy Dean who uh, uh, realized that he had an odd number of sides. And on a plane going back to Nashville, he wrote Big John, which was on the back of a song called Cajun Queen, uh -huh. which they thought was going to be the big hit. Sure. Who's ever heard Cajun Queen? Yeah. Capsule didn't even want to release it. They thought this will never sell. And so they had to have put something in a hurry on the backside of the greatest inventor of them all. So they uh, just reached in the file and took out Mona Lisa on the back said nobody's going to hear this anyway what difference it make and anyway they were proved wrong and we were the uh, the lucky ones because they were proven wrong when was the transition to rock music uh, getting away from those beautiful melody lines when did that all start happening in radio I think this all started in the 50s you know with Fats Domino Presley the Beatles suddenly a new music came along the young generation, suddenly the, the Vietnam War, the peace marches, the love-ins, etc. Music became the flag under which they all um, uh, marched because this was, we're different from our parents, we want a better world. Maybe it didn't turn out to be a better world, but that's what they wanted. And suddenly uh, the roots of, the, uh, of so much of the music was written in was in rhythm and blues and uh, you know gospel, etc., etc. So I'd say in the late 50s, late 60s, then it became a, a, a flood, an inundation, all radio stations that were playing music were getting into this and goodbye uh, uh, Wayne King and Jerome Kern and uh, Livingston and Evans and people like that. Yeah. Steve Allen told me one time, I, I said, how come we don't have these wonderful long legato melody lines anymore? And he picked a year, I forget what it was in the 30s, and named me about 11 composers who were all alive at the same time. Uh, and he said, you know, what a marvelous era that was. He said they wrote for the piano. And in the 1950s, people started writing for the guitar. That's right. And you cannot play long 
flowing lines on guitar. It lends itself to be choppy and short lyrics and short melodies. What they did was play chords on the guitar and sang to it, but it didn't have any melody to it, and that's why it doesn't last. So uh, they make a lot of money because they own the records and the record companies, but their songs don't last. We're really better off. I think we get the 20-year extension on the copyright bill. Our copyrights will will outlive Jay and myself by quite a few years because, uh, as you say, you know you can do beautiful melodies on a piano because it's it's a composition instrument, but a guitar isn't. And we've you know, been uh, said that so many times that on the piano you can do nicer things. It would be a funny routine, kind of a Bob Newhart thing, where Maurice Ravel goes into a music publisher. Yeah. So he says, I have a new melody. And the fellow said, what is it? He said, well, it's kind of long. He said, well, just just play the melody line until you get to the repeat. <laughs> and it's Bolero, of course, uh-huh. which <laughs> there, it really doesn't have one. Well, you know what happens now? The record men, the producers, are all young. They're all into rock. And if I walked in with Begin the Begin, they'd laugh me out of the office. Nobody could, they can't write those songs for them because they don't understand them. And that would be a foreign language to them. You know, it, it just doesn't happen anymore because that's not their bag, that's not their thing. So is it a whole different ear? I mean, you say Begin the Begin, it's a little hard to hold the mic and do it, but I hear the kind of syncopated rhythm that has to go with it. You mentioned marching bands. Why does every marching band, even at an all American event, play Brazil? I've never figured out why they play Brazil all the time. I thought they played Sousa. <laughs> Did they play Brazil? Oh, yeah, you'll hear... Uh-huh. Maybe it's because half the band can do that while the other half plays the yeah. melody. Or they do a lot of rock now. I go to the all ESC games here, and the, the home game, and they're playing rock all the time. And it's awful rock. You know, yeah. you, you, uh, 250 musicians, you know, cannot play rock when they're marching around the field. But uh, you, they do play Brazil every once in a while. And the Stars and Stripes, every, you know, every show, they do it some kind of a syncopated beat, which is not the way to play the song. It doesn't get the, the, the march. It doesn't give it the, its flavor. I had to ask about Tammy, how that wonderful song and how those beautiful lyrics got started. And I was told by songwriters Jay Livingston and Ray Evans that the lyric we know now was born slightly differently. I hear the sycamores whispering above. We, I didn't like cottonwoods. The, cottonwoods. I didn't like the sound of sycamores. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I ruined your story. You want to start it over? No. <laughs> oh, I hear the sycamores whispering above. So I have a book that lists. I looked up trees, and there was cottonwoods. And that sounded real pretty. They looked up Cottonwoods in the dictionary and said it's indigenous to the south, which is where this picture took place. So I became Cottonwoods. That's how you write. You work it out. We had a song in the Tales of Vienna Woods that we wrote the lyric to. Put something about the chestnut trees. I didn't know what kind of trees they had in the Vienna Woods. We couldn't find out. He said, well, who's going to care? I went to Vienna one day. We were driving through. I said, what kind of trees are those guys? said, they're all chestnut trees. We did this uh, a jazz version, a Dixieland version for an album we did with Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney, traveling around the world and taking national songs and giving them a Dixie beat. So we took the tale to Vienna Woods for Austria, and one of the lines that Jay said was something about the chestnut trees. And we were right. There were chestnut trees by luck, yeah. Songwriters Jay Livingston and Ray Evans celebrating when I interviewed interviewed them their 60th anniversary as songwriters, and it all started for them in college. More from Jay and Ray after the break. Welcome back. Songwriters Ray Livingston and Jay Evans wrote everything from Mona Lisa to Silver Bells to Tammy. 
and I had the occasion of spending time with them on the 60th anniversary of their teaming up to write music, and they each had wonderful stories about what it was like when they traveled overseas and heard their own music. I was in East Berlin before the wall was uh, was down, and I was really a closed society. So uh, I was with a tourist group. We'd come out of Russia, and I was in a very elegant, brand-new hotel that had just been built there. So I went into the bar, and there was a kind of a blousy-looking band playing on a stage, four or five pieces, and they're playing something, and I said, gee, that sounds familiar. What did and I suddenly realized it was a song we had written for Bob Hope. 40 years ago called A Thousand Violins. So when they finished it, I went for the band. I said, thank you very much. I'm one of the writers of the song. And they just stared at me. So I went to the uh, uh, to the bartender who spoke a little language and said, no, they just played a song that I had written. I'm an American tourist here. Would you tell them how appreciative I am of they play it? He said, I can't talk to them. They're from Bulgaria. <laughs> now, how 40 years later is a band from Bulgaria in East Germany find American Livingston Evans song written for Bapo and they perform it? That is one of the great things of being in the music business. You know, my favorite song is uh, All the Things You Are. I whistle it all the time, and I think of these wonderful arrangements where the whole orchestra bump, 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 stops, you know, leaving that, where you come back in and fit, like Laura has one of those, bump, 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 and you have an opportunity to go, and you see, and then the whole band would come back yeah. in. But you think of melodies which become so ingrained in us that children know them and i mean i i can't imagine wherever jerome kern is right now that when that when he wrote all the things you are he would think that here with the millennium almost over that yeah. it's still being heard and performed every day well the songs of that era have never ended fortunately for us we get new records all the time uh, all our songs especially case sarasara mona lisa mm -hmm. and that song called never let me go which is my favorite it's in the jazz world we wrote it for nat cole for a picture Lane is a great record a lot of records so these records are being done all the time because they can't record instrumentally a rock song there's no melody so they have to come to us and our colleagues captain carry usa was it alan ladd it's that wonderful movie where they had a special effect where someone gets hit in the face and they had put a piece of glass in front of them so when the vase hits them it hits the glass and it makes it look like it hit them in the face but it left a piece of a vase on the glass it's, it's one of those wonderful special effects that didn't work for those who don't remember the the song mona lisa mona lisa man have named you was sung in this village i think as a cue when that, that there yeah. was danger, right? That's right. A Nazi patrol was near. Alan Ladd was with the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA, and he was there fighting, the, uh, helping fight the Nazis. And when a Nazi patrol was coming in, uh, the, the, the picture, the producer, the scriptwriter needed a song to uh, to warn uh, the partisans that uh, get out of the way, it's dangerous, as you said. And instead of going mysterioso, we said we'll write a pretty Italian-style song we can, and uh, luckily we got Nat Cole to record it, cetera, and the rest is history. It's become an annuity place. Well, now, if they had had Nicholas Rocha do that, he would have had a theremin being yeah. played, I think, when the Nazis showed up. That's right. Well, the trick was that there was a, a, a street accordion player, and when he was tipped off that the Nazis were coming, he would play in a morning he sent Alan Lab get out of the way. It was a very unimportant assignment, but it turned out to be an important song. And Nat King Cole did a marvelous recording of it. I wanted to find out from Jay Livingston and Ray Evans just what the late Nat King Cole was like. He was the gentleman. He was as gentle as his voice. I think that's what's made him so popular. 
I think it's difficult yeah. now. Certainly, we still have racial bias in this country, but to think there was a time when he, this man was a megastar and they couldn't find a sponsor for his TV show. Not only that, but he was forced off the stage in, I think, in Birmingham, Alabama. He wanted to be a professional baseball player. He probably was good enough to do it, but there were no African-American baseball players in those days. Oh, he was a real gentleman, a sweet man, and a great interpreter of music, song, jazz, and everything else. Well, you know, even if he'd never sung, some of the improvisational things he did in, in concert uh, on the piano will stand out forever as being really excellent top-of-the-line stuff. Oh, he was a great pianist. He was playing downtown in a little joint, and uh, uh, he never sang. And a drunk came over threatening and said, I want you to sing Sweet Lorraine. And that was the first song he ever sang. And Johnny Mercer heard him and brought him up to Capitol, the record company that Johnny had started. It was just a few people, and that started Nat Cole. Uh, Nat didn't like people to play songs for him. He was such a musician, he just wanted the music. But Paramount made a big deal about Mona Lisa, and he had to listen to us at his home. He didn't like to say no to people. That's why he didn't want to listen to a song. So uh, we played it for him. It was on the back side of a record called The Greatest Inventor of Them All. It was supposed to be a big hit. Never even mentioned Mona Lisa in their ads. And that's how that, came, that thing happened. I love those songs that are B-sides. There's, yeah, there, sure. there's the great uh, Jimmy Dean who uh, uh, realized that he had an odd number of sides. And on a plane going back to Nashville, he wrote Big John, which was on the back of a song called Cajun Queen, which they thought was going to be the big hit. Who's ever heard Cajun Queen? Capital didn't even want to release it. They thought this will never sell. And so they had to have put something in a hurry on the backside of the greatest inventor of them all. So they uh, just reached in the filed and took out Mona Lisa on the back said nobody's going to hear this anyway what difference it make and anyway they were proved wrong and we were the uh, the lucky ones because they were proven wrong when was the transition to rock music uh, getting away from those beautiful melody lines when did that all start happening in radio I think this all started in the 50s you know with Fats Domino Presley the Beatles suddenly a new music came along the young generation, suddenly the, the Vietnam War, the peace marches, the love-ins, etc. Music became the flag under which they all um, uh, marched because this was, we're different from our parents, we want a better world. Maybe it didn't turn out to be a better world, but that's what they wanted. And suddenly, uh, the roots of, the, uh, of so much of the music was written in was in rhythm and blues and uh, you know gospel, etc., etc. So I'd say in the late 50s, late 60s, then it became a, a, a flood, an inundation. All radio stations that were playing music were getting into this, and goodbye uh, uh, Wayne King and Jerome Kern and uh, Livingston and Evans and people like that. Yeah. Steve Allen told me one time, I, I said, how come we don't have these wonderful long legato melody lines anymore? And he picked a year, I forget what it was in the 30s and named me about 11 composers who were all alive at the same time uh, and he said you know what a marvelous era that was he said they wrote for the piano and in the 1950s people started writing for the guitar That's right and you cannot play long flowing lines on guitar it lends itself to be choppy and short lyrics and short melodies what they did was play chords on the guitar and sang to it but it didn't have any melody to it and that's why it doesn't last so uh, they make a lot of money because they own the records and the record companies, but their songs don't last. We're really better off.
I think. We get the 20-year extension on the copyright bill. Our copyrights will, will outlive Jay and myself by quite a few years because, uh, as you say, you know, you can do beautiful melodies on a piano because it's, it's a composition instrument, but a guitar isn't. And we've you know, been uh, said that so many times that on the piano you can do nicer things. It would be a funny routine, kind of a Bob Newhart thing, where Maurice Ravel goes into a music publisher. Yeah. So he says, I have a new melody. And the fellow said, what is it? He said, well, it's kind of long. He said, well, just just play the melody line until you get to the repeat. <laughs> and it's Bolero, of course, uh-huh. which <laughs> there, it really doesn't have one. Well, you know what happens now? The record men, the producers, are all young. They're all into rock. And if I walked in with Begin the Begin, they'd laugh me out of the office. Nobody could, they can't write those songs for them because they don't understand them. And that would be a foreign language to them. You know, it, it just doesn't happen anymore because that's not their bag. That's not their thing. So is it a whole different ear? I mean, you say Begin the Begin. It's a little hard to hold the mic and do it. But I hear the kind of syncopated rhythm that has to go with it. You mentioned marching bands. Why does every marching band, even at an all-American event, play Brazil? I've never figured out why they play Brazil all the time. I thought they played Sousa. <laughs> Did they play Brazil? Oh, yeah, you'll hear... Uh-huh. Maybe it's because half the band can do that while the other half plays the yeah. melody. Or they do a lot of rock now. I go to the all ESC games here, and the, the home game, and they're playing rock all the time. And it's awful rock. You know, yeah. you, you, uh, 250 musicians, you know, cannot play rock when they're marching around the field. But uh, you, they do play Brazil every once in a while. And the Stars and Stripes, every, you know, every show, they do it some kind of a syncopated beat, which is not the way to play the song. It doesn't get the, the, the march. It doesn't give it the, its flavor. I had to ask about Tammy, how that wonderful song and how those beautiful lyrics got started. And I was told by songwriters Jay Livingston and Ray Evans that the lyric we know now was born slightly differently. I hear the sycamores whispering above. We, I didn't like cottonwoods. The, cottonwoods. I didn't like the sound of sycamores. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I ruined your story. You want to start it over? No. <laughs> oh, I hear the sycamores whispering above. So I have a book that lists. I looked up trees, and there was cottonwoods. And that sounded real pretty. They looked up Cottonwoods in the dictionary and said it's indigenous to the South, which is where this picture took place. So I became Cottonwoods. That's how you write. You work it out. We had a song in the Tales of Vienna Woods that we wrote the lyric to. Put something about the chestnut trees. I didn't know what kind of trees they had in the Vienna Woods. We couldn't find out. He said, well, who's going to care? I went to Vienna when they were driving through. I said, what kind of trees are those guys? said, they're all chestnut trees. We did this uh, a jazz version, a Dixieland version for an album we did for Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney, traveling around the world and taking national songs and giving them a Dixie beat. So we took the tale to Vienna Woods for Austria, and one of the lines that Jay said was something about the chestnut trees. And we were right. There were chestnut trees by luck, yeah. Songwriters Jay Livingston and Ray Evans celebrating when I interviewed interviewed them their 60th anniversary as songwriters, and it all started for them in college. More from Jay and Ray after the break. Welcome back. One of the things I found out being in radio so long is that a great number of people in radio are ham radio operators. I mean, in their private lives, they're hams. Well, some of them are hams in their real life, but anyway, that's another story. Years ago, I got the chance to go to the biggest group meeting of hams, the Ham Fest, the Hamvention, if you will, and it was held every year in Dayton, Ohio. 
and ham pensions are noisy places. What you're hearing in the background is an innovative way to learn code. It's being played on a cassette machine from the back of a pickup truck. A vendor is here. There are thousands of people here selling everything from new computer equipment to old-fashioned tubes and things you haven't seen for a very long time. That is some of the fun of going to Hamvention. Not only the new exhibits, but also seeing all the things for sale in the flea market. For $25 and the 1996. The first person I ran into was Armin Noble. He is a publisher, and like many people at the Ham Fest, he was very quick to tell me not only his name, but his FCC call sign. My call is N6WR, and people just call me Armin. Armin, where are you headquartered? Sacramento, California. How many years have you been going to the uh, Hamvention here? Uh, we've been here about 10 consecutive years. You know, I grew up in southern Indiana, not too far from here, and had wanted for decades to come here. I mean, this has been going on since, I think, the 50s. Oh, oh yes. And, and, and I had to finally go out on assignment to do it. What does this mean to the ham radio operator? Not, well, I want to get into what it means to the vendors, but to the people who are here, there seems to be a great sense of camaraderie. Oh, uh, that probably is one of the most interesting facets of amateur radio is the uh, way they all feel about each other. It's kind of like soldiers and policemen, a shared experience. They know they've all had to go and take the tests necessary to get a license, and so there is a, a, a great kinship amongst amateurs. Can we define for those who have heard the phrase ham radio or amateur radio just what it is? The first thing I want to put in is that it's not like CB, where everybody and his brother can jump on with any kind of equipment and violate every rule in the book. It, it takes some degree of knowledge and discipline. Absolutely, and and uh, amateurs uh, kind of take great umbrage if someone sees an antenna on their car and says, uh, "What channel are you on?" <laughs> yes, the uh, the various tests are uh, somewhat difficult, but but not impossible. Uh, there are some seven hundred thousand active or amateurs in the United States today that have managed to pass this test. These tests, uh, approximately half of the amateurs are employed in some technical uh, employment, but the other half are as big a cross-section of occupation and education and income as you could imagine. Well, I've been in broadcasting for 30 years, and I'm beginning to think, because I'm one of those people who's married to my job with no real hobby, that this would be the sensible thing for me to get into as I head toward retirement. Well, that's true, uh, particularly um, while there are you know, many young amateurs. A thing of it is, for the older, let's say when in another 50 years, uh, when you can't play tennis or golf or anything like that, you can sit home and here is an entire window on the world uh, in the international way and in the local with the various uh, repeaters on. You're in constant contact, not only for the fun, but the uh, emergency nature of it also. Something I've noticed too uh, that surprised me, but it really shouldn't, is that this group uh, meeting here, the number of handicapped people, a uh, couple of uh, several blind people I've yes. talked to, uh, very, very senior citizens. You talk about a cross-section, but as far as affording a lot of people who are homebound a link with the outside world, this is absolutely perfect. In fact, there is a organization called Handy Hams, and 
and made up of the handicapped, bedridden, wheelchair-driven, uh, housebound, uh, who the able-bodied support this organization. And as you could well imagine, someone that could not even leave their home, what what this offers now? Now they, you know, they can partake of other, you know, of activities. A publisher who is nationally known for his good work in amateur radio is Armin Noble. We've been talking to him about the wonderful world of radio, and I ask him how things have changed in the decades or so since he got his first license. I was first licensed in 1958, and I was interested in it far earlier than that. I think the biggest change, like you say, in, besides the equipment, you know, getting much smaller and much lighter, consuming less power and costing much less, is that many years ago, amateur radio was made up of, of highly technical people, and that was the sum and total of it. Today, uh, much more of the emphasis is on emergency communications, uh, public service, you know, furnishing the communications for the various walks or runs for charities. And uh, that entire facet uh, is, is, is taking the place of the intense technical orientation. The, in, in California, where I'm from, the uh, Rose Bowl Parade is monitored by the amateur television group. Hmm. Now tell us about World Radio, the company you're with. You're, you're where in California? We're in uh, Sacramento. And uh, World Radio is a monthly magazine about amateur radio. And we've been publishing monthly for uh, 25 years. Well, Armin, thanks for taking the time to talk. Uh, it took me decades to finally get here. Wish it were a little cooler today, but uh, it's a heck of a convention. It's, uh, it is a bit warm. Well, this is like the elephant cage. You know, you get 30,000 people going. And uh, any of your uh, listeners that would like a totally free copy of World Radio, and we're very non-technical, very little jargon. Good place to start, then. And, and it would help them understand all the facets if you just call area code 916-457-3655. One is yours totally free. Armin, thank you. My pleasure. Double Ray Alkaline, 24 for $10. Auto Headrest Pillows, 2 for $5. This week on American Montage, we are among some 35,000 people attending the annual Hamvention, the biggest assemblage of amateur radio operators in the U.S., and it happens every spring in Dayton, Ohio. It is quite an undertaking for the local Dayton Ham Club to put all of this together. I walked around the display areas with Dick Miller, who is the number two man in charge this year. It started in 1952. It started at the Goldmore uh, Hotel downtown, and then we outgrew that and moved to Hare Arena here in... Um, 1964, I believe, and then from then on, it, it just grew until now we take the whole Hera complex. Now, you are, before this is over, expecting about how many people here? Well, the way it looks, we're going to be around around 35,000. That's the number of tickets we sell. Uh, would that be a record? Uh, it'd be real close. It'd be real close to a record. And it's the first year, for a couple of years, we've had really nice weather, and maybe that's because we moved it three weeks later into the year. I know I went to a smaller ham fest in the Washington, D.C. area a couple of years ago. It was very early in the spring, and the poor people got hit with an ice storm, and it was just the worst possible thing. But, of course, any kind of event, whether it's, uh, you know, the state fair or whatever, it's hard to plan in advance. There are so many things to see here, and, and in the time we have, we can't go through everything. But 
from the layman standpoint, particularly, let's say, a person who's heard about ham radio, amateur radio, what are the good things about going to what they call locally a ham fest or hear the hamvention? Well, if they're technically oriented, it's a very enlightening of the uh, newest developments in, uh, in not only amateur radio, but electronics in general. As far as their, the uh, people's interest in why why is there amateur radio, it's a public service organization. That's how it started out. Uh, we're standing right by this van here. We've it's been to many uh, really disasters from uh, and, and other public servicing floods, and, and we also do a lot of public service like uh, monitoring uh, runs, ri bicycle rides, walks for, for charities and so forth. A long interview with Ray Evans and Jay Livingston, who wrote a huge amount of things we all take for granted, Mona Lisa and even the theme for Mr. Ed. And then a short visit to the Ham Radio Convention. Always great to have you along every Monday afternoon in the 3 o'clock hour and digging up some interviews I forgot I had. They're great fun to listen to. I hope you'll join me next Monday. Oh, and if you want to email me, it's simple, bingo, B-I-N-G-O, at earthlink.net. I'm Dennis Daly. See you next Monday.